Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page and sign up at any level, even if it's just a dollar. So this will be the next installment in the history of the United States in 100 Objects, number 22. The Hawaiian Stone Mirror, or Kilo Pohaku, from Makauahi Cave. And this lecture will be sponsored by the letter L. So ordinarily, the even-numbered lectures in these ongoing series, including History of the United States and 100 Objects, would be patron-only, available on Patreon only for patrons for one year. But I'm making an exception with this one because it happens to come at a historic moment and I wanted it to be available to the public, both for the benefit of this podcast and also for bringing attention or publicity to the situation in Hawaii. But uh, the next episode or two in my other ongoing series on the origins of the First World War will be patron-only instead, and the next one probably will be on Germany. So sign up as a patron if you want to hear that one when it comes out soon. So many of you surely have seen reports about the situation in Hawaii, where earlier this month wildfires swept through the western end of the island of Maui and killed over 100 people. The death toll is still being assessed and destroying most of the historic town of Lahaina. So Lahaina is among the oldest and most historically important towns in the Hawaiian Islands. For about a quarter century, from 1820 to 45, it was the royal capital of the Kingdom of Hawaii before the government moved to Honolulu. Not only were many homes lost in and around Lahaina, but also important historic landmarks like churches and historic artifacts. The Lahaina Heritage Museum was housed in an old courthouse in the town, and it was built like many old buildings in the Hawaiian Islands. It was built with walls of coral and with a wooden roof, and this roof burned down and collapsed in the fire, and the curators have not been allowed yet to go in and survey the damage, but it's likely that this fire destroyed most of the collection, including books, manuscripts, maps, rare woodwork art, and feather art, for which Hawaiian artisans were famous. In the aftermath of the fire, there also are fears and concerns about the danger of more destruction of a different kind. It's likely that capital investment will rush in and buy up property at this moment on the cheap in order to redevelop it, mainly for the benefit of tourism and vacationers, not locals. And this process has happened and played out in other sites that have tried to recover from disasters, such as New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And it can result in the pricing out of locals and often also in the destruction of natural and historical sites. And it happens that as I was looking ahead in this series, I was already thinking that I should discuss an object from Alaska or Hawaii, where I have not gone yet in this series, And now it seems, of course, even more important since it can be illuminating as to what is so special and distinctive and also what puts Hawaiian history and art at risk. So as for the art and archaeology of Hawaii and the challenges that it presents, the Hawaiian islands were relatively isolated until the 1700s, and they were mostly self-sufficient, 
with some degree of contact with other parts of Polynesia, but they developed their own technology and their own artistic styles based on the limited materials that were available in this island chain. And European contact started with the landing of Captain Cook's voyage in the Hawaiian Islands in 1778. And a few years later, in the 1790s, this new threat of outsiders with their new technologies, their new diseases, and so on, led a particular local ruler named Kamehameha to unite the islands together into one kingdom. And this process was completed between 1795 and 1810. But nonetheless, after that point, Europeans did continue to arrive in the islands and began exerting power and obtaining land, sometimes by force or legal trickery or fraud. And these included whalers, sugar planters, and most of all, missionaries, who especially began to exert a great deal of political influence in the islands. And a great deal of native Hawaiian crafts and technologies at this time faded out as they were replaced by foreign imports coming by sea. At the same time, Hawaiian art and artifacts attracted attention abroad and became objects of exotic interest to European and American collectors and antiquarians. And so many Hawaiian antiquities were bought, found, or raided from the islands and were then dispersed around the world, with the largest number of them following missionary routes back to the U.S. and Britain. For example, now after the Maui fire, it seems that one of the major surviving collections of manuscripts and printed works from the island of Maui is held in the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts. And they made their way there because Protestant missionaries from Massachusetts sent copies of these texts that they found or collected in Maui back to Worcester. But also at the same time that there was this sort of drain of art and history out of Hawaii, there also then came countervailing efforts at collecting and preserving this history and archaeology within Hawaii. And an early leader of this effort was a native Hawaiian man named Davida Malo, who was a minister, historian, and translator originally from the so-called Big Island of Hawaii, but who lived and worked for most of his career in Maui and worked for a time at the royal court in Lahaina. And in 1838, Malo wrote a book called Hawaiian Antiquities, where he tried to chronicle the history and customs of the islands and to catalog the arts and crafts of Hawaii, especially as they were fading out in the 19th century. This was followed then by later historical and preservation societies through the Victorian age, with, for example, the Bishop Museum being founded in Honolulu in 1889, founded by the husband of Bernice Pawahi Bishop, who was the last descendant of King Kamehameha, who had united the islands. This was followed then by the Hawaiian Historical Society in 1892, which had patronage from Queen Liliuo Kalani, the last independent monarch of the islands, and then by the Kauai Historical Society on the far western island of Kauai, founded in 1914, and later the Maui Historical Society, which was founded in 1956, and then the following year in 1957 opened up a museum called the Hale Hoikeike, in the town of Wailuku, basically in central Maui. And shortly after that, the Lahaina Restoration Foundation, which was established in 1962 and which operates 
and curate several sites and museums around Lahaina, including the Lahaina Heritage Museum, which opened in 2004, which I mentioned before, which suffered this catastrophic fire and will have to be salvaged in some way. So as for the art and artifacts themselves, they come from the distinctive combination of materials that are found on the Hawaiian islands. So the main materials that you see in Hawaiian art and artifacts from before colonization are made of wood, feathers in many cases, feather art, hair, bone, including whale bone and whale teeth, plant fibers, especially including bark cloth called tapa, and most of all, stone, which in the Hawaiian language is called pohaku. So these islands are geologically very young, having been created completely by volcanoes on a volcanic hotspot in the middle of the Pacific. And hence, they have very little fine soils or clay, and hence, little or no pottery can be made in the Hawaiian islands. And when pottery did show up in pre-colonial Hawaii, it was usually a sort of imported fine material from somewhere far away in the Pacific. The islands also have very little metal. Hardly any metal deposits can be found anywhere in these volcanic islands. And so this led the native Hawaiian people to rely very heavily on stone and as a result to develop extreme and precise skills in stonework, making all kinds of objects, tools, artworks out of stone that in other societies might be made from ceramics, metal, and other materials. There's also very little soft sedimentary rock in the Hawaiian islands, like limestone, which takes many thousands of years to develop. And instead, the Hawaiians relied mainly on igneous rocks, like especially basalt, which they used for building houses, temples, walled fish ponds, and they also developed techniques of finely carving, shaping, and polishing stone in order to create stone vessels, tools like fish hooks, personal ornaments and artworks, and everyday items of very high quality, such as mortars and pestles, salt basins in which one could evaporate seawater to collect salt, gaming pieces, and small statues and figurines called ki'i, which represented gods or ancestors. And all of these sort of stone items from Hawaii today are very rare and highly valued on the antiquities market especially items that became outmoded and replaced by metal substitutes like the fishhooks. Now, probably the rarest and most coveted class of these ancient stone objects from Hawaii is the stone mirrors, or as they're called in Hawaiian, kilo pohaku. And these, roughly speaking, are circular disks of black or dark gray volcanic rock, such as basalt, phonolite or basinite, which is a more rare igneous rock collected from the small island of Kaula. These discs are carved and polished to have a glossy, almost mirrory surface, and in some cases they also have a perforation near the edge in order to hang them from a cord. Now the name for these items, kilo pohaku, is sometimes translated as stone mirror, but this is in fact a loaded phrase and probably a mistranslation. In fact, it must be a mistranslation, considering that native Hawaiians before European contact did not have glass or metal implements, and hence they did not have mirrors the way we think of in the modern world. 
And the word kilo, so I mentioned pohaku is a general word for stone or stone that can be carved and worked. Kilo is a verb meaning to watch, observe, examine, or forecast. And hence, kilo pohaku might more precisely mean viewing stone or even forecasting stone. And it seems that these discs were used in some way to view and examine reflections, although exactly how they were used to do this is not clear. The surviving stones are not all identical. Some of their surfaces are highly polished and glossy, but even still are not enough to be able to see a reflection directly. And so it seems that they were used either by immersing the stone disc in water, such as in a wood basin, or by wetting them with drops of water or oil to produce a reflection. Or perhaps they were used by both methods. And we will go back to this question later of the exact mechanics of how one actually produced a reflection with these stone discs. Furthermore, they're mysterious partly because they are so rare. They were antiquated already by the late 1800s when this preservation movement began. And for instance, in 1902, William Brigham, who was a curator of the Bishop Museum in Honolulu, wrote a book called Stone Implements and Stonework of the Ancient Hawaiians. And he addressed these kilopohaku, and he wrote, quote, They rapidly disappeared from use with the advent of European glass mirrors, and their use was soon forgotten. Specimens are no longer common, end quote. And then six years later, the same curator, Brigham, wrote another book called The Native Hawaiian House. And here he again addressed the mirrors, and he wrote, quote, I have elsewhere described the Hawaiian stone mirrors, or kilo pohaku, as one of the most ingenious of savage contrivances. So, you know, he's using this antiquated Victorian anthropological language. One of the most ingenious of savage contrivances. With the importation of the far more efficient coated glass mirror, these native reflectors soon vanished, end quote. So already these have become an object of sort of fascination because exactly what they are, how they were made, or why was already obscure. And they remain rare today, although now, of course, with the internet, it's possible to conduct a kind of survey and try to collect information about the different specimens that have surfaced in different places through the years. And in my own search, I was able to find information on 16 distinct specimens of kilopohaku that are held in various places around the world. So this is what I found about these 16 specimens. As for where they are and how they ended up there, out of these 16, 10 are in Great Britain, specifically nine in the collection of the British Museum in London and one in the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. As for those in the British Museum, all of them are of unknown provenance, with several of them having notes specifically saying that their identity and origin were lost at some point, except for one exception, which the British Museum records say was bought by the museum from the London Missionary Society in 1910. As for the one in the Pitt Rivers Museum, this one was given to that museum in 1901 by Robert Dukenfield Derbyshire, who was a Manchester lawyer who reportedly obtained it from an unnamed friend. So more or less we can reconstruct that through contacts, mainly through missionary groups, 
these mirrors were taken out of Hawaii and ended up in collections in Britain, though in many cases the exact pathway was lost to time. As for the other six, those are all located somewhere in the United States. Three of them are held in private hands. One of them in the collection of the art collector Mark Blackburn in Hawaii. Another one that was sold at auction at Bonham's Auction House in San Francisco in 2015 for a price of $25,000. And the catalog of Bonham says that this particular one had been found by a pleasure diver in the waters off of Oahu in the 1980s. And then another one was sold at Bonham's Auction House in Los Angeles the following year in 2016, this one being appraised at a price of eight dollars to $12,000. Then there are finally three others that are in some sort of public or museum collection in Hawaii. One of them is displayed in the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. Another one is held in the Haleho'ike Ike Museum of the Maui Historical Society in Wailuku, Maui. This one reportedly was donated by a donor named Walter Waite, a local pineapple planter of partly native ancestry who died in Maui in 1960, and hence it's possible it might have come down in his family. And then finally, one more is stored along with other historic artifacts in the archives of the National Tropical Botanical Garden on the island of Kauai. And this one was excavated from a cave on that same island of Kauai. And this last one will be my main focus, since it has the best documented provenance. It's the only one of the 16 that was found in an archaeological context, which then can illuminate how it was used and why. Now, what can we say about the characteristics of these 16 specimens that I was able to identify? All of them are made of dark gray or black igneous rock. They range in diameter from two and a half to five inches wide, and most of them are less than half an inch thick. So they are thin, light disks. Those that are housed in the British Museum generally cluster on the smaller end of the scale mostly ranging from three to three and a half inches wide. And they tend to be very lustrous and dark in color, suggesting that those in the British Museum collection may have all been obtained in a single group from one source. And it happens that one of them stands out also as exceptionally thick, about one inch thick, giving it an, an unusual sort of hockey puck shape. So there is some variation that one can see in the precise sizes and shapes of the stones. Most of them seem to have perfectly flat top surfaces, but some of them, such as several of those in the British Museum and the one at the Bishop Museum in Honolulu, have slightly convex faces, with the surface tapering downward at the edges. And this may be a clue to the existence of different varieties of Kilo Pohaku that may have been made by different craftsmen with slightly different uses or purposes in mind. At least that's one possibility to consider. Now finally, another major variation in the Kilo Pohaku is whether or not they are perforated. So of these 16 specimens, four are perforated with sizable holes near the edge, allowing them to be affixed to a cord and possibly carried around or worn as a pendant. Nine others are not perforated, Two of those in the British Museum collection don't have any photos online, and it is unknown whether or not they are perforated. 
And finally, one in the British Museum collection has an incomplete perforation, where a partial hole, basically just a cavity, was drilled in near the edge, as if it was intended to be perforated, but it was never finished. So in sum, with all of these variations in size, color, texture, shape, and perforation, this suggests that multiple makers made kilopohaku in somewhat varying styles, probably over many years, which may have been intended for slightly different uses. So what was the mode of use of a kilopohaku? How did it work, and what purpose did it serve? Well, if one looks at the different written references from curators, anthropologists, and local Hawaiian sources through the years, there are occasional suggestions of medicinal use that comes up from time to time. For example, the note on one of the British Museum specimens says, quote, applied to boils by the kahunas or medicine men. Also, William Brigham, in his book The Ancient Hawaiian House from 1908, wrote that they, quote, were used as a cooling application to furunculi or other inflamed portions of the body. They became pohaku lapau in the armamentum chirurgium. So they became medicine stones in the surgical or medicinal armaments of the Hawaiian kahuna lapau or medicine man. Now, this may be true that, in fact, these had some medicinal application and that these kahuna, or so-called medicine men, used them in this way. But nonetheless, it's clear that this was never the main use. Rather, all sources agree that the primary purpose of the kilopohaku was for viewing reflections. But how did it work? How could a flat stone create visible reflections? When these objects are dry, no matter how well polished they are, they do not create any sort of clear image. So the main divide in the explanations that different people have put forward as to how these stones worked is whether they were wetted or submerged. So was the reflection created by putting liquid onto the surface of the stone, making it wet so it becomes reflective, or were they dipped or immersed underwater? Well, most scholarly or museum texts today say that it was by wetting with water or oil. For example, Dr. Sam Gon III, who is a consultant for the Moana Lua Garden Foundation in Hawaii, wrote a fact sheet on Hawaiian stone artifacts in 2002, and he defined Kilo Pohaku as, quote, dark polished stone mirrors which provide a fine reflection of one's face when covered with a sheen of water. So this seems to be the sort of broadly accepted and shared conventional wisdom about how Kilo Pohaku worked. However, the earliest surviving written references that one can find to these objects say that this is not how they worked at all. For instance, the earliest reference that I was able to find to the function of a Kilo Pohaku is in David Malo's book that I mentioned before, Hawaiian Antiquities from 1838. And he briefly addresses the Kilo Pohaku in a passage where he writes, quote, For mirrors, the ancient Hawaiians used a flat piece of wood, highly polished, then darkened with a vegetable stain and some earthy pigment. After that, on being thrust into the water, a dim reflection was seen by looking into it. Another mirror was made of stone. It was ground smooth and used after immersion in water. So if we put aside for a moment this reference to wooden mirrors, 
which come up again, but if any of these were ever created, they probably didn't survive through the years, being very fragile and perishable, more so than the stone mirrors. But if we bracket that aside for the moment, David Amalo, who seems as if he should know, because he was connected to traditional Hawaiian society, and he's the earliest source that we have discussing these Hawaiian artifacts and how they were used, he says that it was immersed in water. Well, how would that work? It seems that the way this mirror could work is by aiding in the discernment and viewing of reflections on water in a calm pool or vessel. So you can imagine taking, say, a traditional Hawaiian vessel like a wood calabash, putting water in it so it has a clear, calm surface, and then if you look at the reflections on that water, you may be able to make something out, like your own face or the scenery around you, but it will be very unclear and hard to discern against the sort of mottled colors of the wood underneath. But if you put a dark object into that water, then the reflections become much clearer and sharper. So it's really just a function of the fact that water is a material that's somewhat reflective, that reflects some light off its surface, but then absorbs a lot of other light that then can bounce around in whatever space or vessel the water is in. And if you just put in a, a light-absorbing dark object in there under the water, it serves to absorb those rays of light coming in through the water so that the reflections stand out more clearly and you have something like a usable mirror. Now, William Brigham, this later scholar who I've already quoted before, in his two books, he agrees with Malo. So in his 1902 book, he writes, These were not highly polished and do not in the least reflect when in a dry condition, so their properties would be concealed by the casual observer. But placed in a shallow calabash of water, the dark background of the stone gives back a sufficiently clear reflection." End quote. And then again in his 1908 book, he writes, These mirrors or stone discs, and doubtless the wooden ones likewise, had no reflecting surface when dry, and as Malo states, were not used by merely wetting the surface, but were wholly immersed in a shallow dish of water, when, as may be seen by the experiment, a fair reflection appears when the stone is in shadow and the face well lighted." End quote. So it seems from these earliest descriptions that this is how these scholars understood the Kilo Pohaku as working, by simply providing a dark background against which reflections on water would be more clear and distinct. And one can actually see a photograph demonstrating this process on the site of the Hawaiian conservation organization called Papahana Kuaula, specifically on the page titled Uses of Pohaku, and I'll link to that in the description so you can go there and scroll down and look at the photograph to see what we're describing. But you may have noticed in quoting these early scholars, certain things stood out, certain discrepancies. For one thing, as I've discussed, there are different styles of Kilo Pohaku. They don't all look exactly the same. And Brigham claimed in his passages that the Kilo Pohaku were not highly polished. But in fact, some surviving specimens are very highly polished, such as several of those in the British Museum collection. So it's possible that perhaps some Kilo Pohaku were made for this immersion method, 
while others, perhaps those that were more finely finished, were actually made for the wetting technique. Now, one of the more highly polished specimens is the one that was found by archaeologists in Kauai, specifically in the cave called Makawahi. So Makawahi is the only large cave system in Hawaii. It's located near the shoreline in the island of Kauai, which is the oldest large island of the island chain. And it's the only one with a great deal of porous limestone of the sort that water can carve out caves inside. In 1992, this cave system was noticed by the archaeologists David Burney and Lita Piggott Burney, who found that it contained chambers with an underground lake, and in and around that lake, multiple layers of sediment that had accumulated mainly from intrusions from the sea, such as from tsunami waves, including layers dating back thousands of years through early human habitation and beyond deep into prehistory and prehuman times. Bernie calls this cave system, quote, a poor man's time machine. And the cave was located on the property of the Grove Farm Company in Kauai, but the company agreed to transfer custody over it to a reserve. And after 2000, scholars were able to start excavating including David Burney and Lita Piggott Burney, together in partnership with the local Hawaiian archaeologists Pilo Kikuchi and others, and a team of excavators from the Smithsonian Institution. And in the cave, they found enormous troves of ancient artifacts, some of them that had been swept into the cave by a tsunami, an especially large one, about 400 years ago. And so they provide a sort of window into ancient Hawaiian society a century or two before European contact. Also, some in the farther inner chambers were found to be in situ, as if they had been left there in a ritual or ceremonial site that then was covered over by a wave or tsunami. And among those ritual objects was a fairly small kilo pohaku, which the archaeologists uncovered in 2005. And in his 2010 book called Back to the Future in the Caves of Kauai, the archaeologist David Burney describes the experience of finding this kilo pohaku. And he writes, quote, Digging under the south cave wall, I found a really rare and precious artifact, a perfectly round, highly polished prehistoric stone mirror. Yes, a mirror. Before European contact, Hawaiians made mirrors by painstakingly polishing a piece of dark, fine-grained basalt to make a perfectly flat, glass-smooth surface. Holding such an object horizontally, one can place a few drops of water on the surface, and it will spread out to make a splendidly reflective layer. As I lifted this wonderful find from its dark, muddy hiding place, it was quite spooky to see myself, cap light and all, reflected in this ancient mirror that had lain below the surface for centuries. In fact, a German film crew was making a documentary for European public television down there in August 2005, and the cameraman was even able to capture my squiggly reflection in this mirror on film. End quote. So David Burney certainly seems to be throwing his weight here behind the idea that Kilo Pohaku can actually be wetted with just a few drops of water and sort of by capillary action, the water will spread out and create a glossy surface in which you can see a clear reflection. 
So this seems to call into question the idea that the Kilo Pohaku were only created for the immersion method. Now, it happens that this particular specimen that Bernie found in the cave was cataloged and photographed. And along with other artifacts from the cave at Makawahi, it was put into special archival storage at the Library of the National Tropical Botanical Garden in Kauai. But David Burney hopes eventually to mount an exhibit where these artifacts can be shown to the public. Furthermore, David Burney shared the color photograph with me, which I have used as the thumbnail for this lecture. And you can see, if you look at the image, the heavy wear and damage around the rim of the mirror, but also the smooth and polished surface in the center. So all in all, this specimen suggests that at least some of the stone mirrors were in fact designed for the wedding method, as perhaps as well as immersion. But then the next question, of course, is what is the purpose? Why would one want to view reflections in a mirror? Well, the first and most obvious answer that might come to our minds is simply cosmetic, right, for the purpose of vanity. So this seems most obvious to us by way of analogy to our own modern use of mirrors. And it's been assumed by many observers that this must be the point of these Kilo Pohaku. So to go back again to William Brigham in his 1902 book, he writes, quote, The Kilo Pohaku of the Hawaiians were most ingenious. Some native Narcissus admiring his face in some placid pool must have caught the suggestion and wiser than the beloved of Echo, Instead of pining away for love of the intangible image, he devised a means of recalling this image at pleasure." Quote. However, we have to consider certain facts. For one thing, no other society went to such great lengths to observe their personal appearance and reflection without the benefit of metalworking, which is the means by which all sorts of other peoples like the Etruscans created mirrors for the purpose of vanity. And furthermore, such small disks, most of them being less than four inches wide, would only provide a very small and vague reflection, really not precise enough for cosmetic purposes. So the other possibility we have to consider here is that they had a ceremonial use. So several written sources associate the Kilopohaku specifically with the figure of the Kahuna, who was a wise person, and hence not only a healer, but also a seer and a shaman. And so it's possible that these mirrors were used for divination. And this too makes sense by an argument from analogy. There are other societies, particularly ancient Mexico, where reflective materials were used to create mirrors that where the reflections may have been too dim to use for personal uh, adornment or grooming, but could supply uh, imagery for divination and visions. So ancient Mexican societies made mirrors out of obsidian, which were often used for divination and shamanic practices. And after European contact, these obsidian mirrors became popular all around the world and spread to many different countries for use by sort of visionaries and diviners. And for example, John Dee, who was kind of the shaman magus of Queen Elizabeth I's court had an Aztecan or Mexican obsidian mirror, which he used for so-called scrying, visions of spirits or visions of the future. Now, in Hawaii, although they are 
volcanic islands, there is a lack of obsidian because the geology there just doesn't have enough silica to create any significant amount of obsidian. But if indigenous Hawaiians were aware of this practice of creating reflective obsidian mirrors, they may have tried to recreate the effect using the sort of dense, dark, black basalt of the volcanic islands. Now, furthermore, the discovery of this particular mirror in Makawahi Cave is very important because, as I said, it was found in context with other objects that seem to have been brought into the cave at the same time. They were found in a relatively remote part of the cave in a layer dating to probably just before European contact and found nearby in the same layer and the same area of the south part of the cave. The archaeologists also found several other significant objects. For one thing, a series of perforated cowrie shells, which seem to be beads, and a very intricately carved bone bead, as well as pieces of plant fiber cord, suggesting that this perforated kilopohaku was worn as a pendant on a necklace around the neck. They also found nearby a stone rocking stool called a noho, which would often be used by a person of authority like a kahuna. They found 10 post holes, suggesting the foundations of an elevated wood platform. And they found large lumps of charcoal, suggesting that fires had been repeatedly set and intentionally doused before burning out. And also in one place, they found a complete pig that had been roasted in an earthen oven and then buried without being eaten. So all of these finds together seem to represent remnants of ritual activity. But of course, it's unclear without further information what these rituals or ceremonies were and what purpose they served. And it was especially hard to interpret because there are so few archaeological sites like this in Hawaii with similar collections of objects in situ. However, the archaeologist Pilo Kukuchi was able to locate a direct descendant of the original indigenous landowners of the area around Makawahi Cave. And this descendant was named La France Capaca Arboleda. And according to her, she related an oral history from her family. And she related this history without knowing what the archaeological finds in the cave had been. And she said that her great-great-grandfather, or I should say great-great-great-grandfather, had been a kahuna named Kea Hikuna. And reportedly, he held ceremonies on an elevated wood platform set into the back of the South Cave, on top of a sandbar in the middle of a small lake. And visitors to the cave would wade through this small pond or around the edges of it to approach the platform and ask the kahuna for advice. And when entertaining these questions, he would light small fires, then scatter the coals and look into the ashes and smoke for visions. So in this way, the oral history independently corroborates the archaeology. And furthermore, linguistic evidence, specifically place name evidence, also further bolsters this story about the use of the South Cave. So the traditional Hawaiian name for the cave system, today it's often just been called the Limestone Cave or the Sinkhole Cave, but the older Hawaiian name was Makawahi, which means smoke in the eye. 
So all in all, it seems as if this part of the cave where the mirror was found was used for visionary practices and ceremonies involving the viewing of visions in smoke. And so this mirror very likely in some way fit into this scene and process involving mystery, visions. And so all of this evidence together suggests that at least this particular kilopohaku was crafted for its value in ritual divination. And hence, it stands to reason that other similar kilopohaku, ones with a similar polished glossy surface or with perforations, may have also been created for the same sort of use. So all in all, what the story of this particular kilopohaku demonstrates is something that I have repeatedly emphasized over and over in the course of this podcast, which is that it shows the great power of archaeology and of oral history, which often are able to preserve and uncover important facts that have been lost in the written record, and that very often bolster and reinforce one another, and which can be critical in understanding the history, especially of a place like Hawaii, where the technology of writing came relatively late, and where a great deal of history has to be reconstructed through the consideration of physical and archaeological evidence and oral histories, which for so many years historians have resisted taking seriously, but which over and over again prove themselves to contain valuable information and facts. So I'd like to thank, I had a lot of help in gathering the information for this lecture, and I'd like to thank the Kauai Historical Society, the National Tropical Botanical Garden, Kauai Community College, and specifically Jason Ford, the curator of the Kikuchi Collection housed at that college, the Maui Historical Society, and specifically Kimo Gekier, the volunteer coordinator of the Hale Ho Ike Ike Museum in Wailuku, Maui, and last but not least, Dr. David Burney of the Makawahi Cave Reserve. And it happens that I was able to communicate with Dr. Burney, and he has custody of this particular mirror that I've discussed from Kauai. And he offered the possibility at some later point of having a conversation on video about the history of this object, possibly including a demonstration of how the mirror works. So if you're interested in seeing that, please let me know, and I'll try when Dr. Burney is back in Kauai, I'll try to arrange that. And lastly, I plan to share a portion of the proceeds from this lecture with several important uh, historical and natural preservation organizations in Hawaii. And so I will provide links in the description to suggested organizations that one could donate to, including the Maui Historical Society, the Lahaina Restoration Foundation, and the Makawahi Cave Reserve. And finally, thank you to the letter L, and more specifically to my current active patrons whose names begin with L. Thank you to Lachlan Paff, Lars Rotem Krangnes, Laura Kane Morris, Lauren DeRoche, Linda Eason, Louise Ironside, Lucas K, and Luke Larson. Thank you.